leg of our uh, our fourth leg of our previous outline. We're dealing with what I am calling practicing righteousness. That is our fourth and final category that was in our previous outline. And we want to deal with what the apostle has already introduced us to in first Corinthians chapter 10. In first Corinthians chapter 10, these verses five through 14 is really what we're going to be looking at. And so how might I talk about practicing righteousness from the standpoint of being a participant in the kingdom of God? It should be the outcome of recognizing the privilege of being in Christ. The privilege of being in Christ is that the people of God are called to practice that righteousness that is imparted. Just as a theological understanding, the believer has a righteousness that is imputed. Imputed righteousness is the total comprehensive work of Christ given to you as yours on the grounds of all that Christ did to make us righteous in him. The believer is called the righteousness of God with two other words. One is a preposition, the other one is a noun, in Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. That is a positional term that helps the believer understand when God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ, and therefore in that position of looking at us in Christ, we enjoy the benefits of being sons and daughters of God. It's very important for you to keep that in mind. This is the doctrine of union, union with Christ. As he was in the world, so are we. That's the way James puts it in James chapter three. And so I'm trying to build that as we move into the practice of righteousness. Practicing righteousness is the response of the people of God because of who they are in Christ. So obedience is always the consequent of a standing. It's never the cause of a standing. It's the consequence and evidence of a standing. Why will I regard to the point of obeying God's imperatives? It's not in order to become a child of God. It's because I am a child of God. And, and again, I, I just want that to come home a bit because of the way I want to frame our study tonight. And then, of course, we'll unpack it much more fully on Friday. And there are a couple of things I want to be able to do. I want us to go back to the sandwich propositions in verse 6, then again over in verse 11. And then I want us to uh, briefly work through um, our points as we have it practicing of righteousness. Over in verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, now these things were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We found out what that was, and that is to say that the Apostle Paul had told the children, uh, the church at Corinth, that when you look back at the behavior of Israel, you saw how they were privileged, but they disregarded their privileges and end up suffering consequences for it. And now what he's about to do is enumerate those consequences that became the outcome of their failing to understand their privileges. Again, verse 6 says, Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That there is a warning. Then we see it again over in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So what are those things 
Paul, that you are telling us that we, when we look back at the Old Testament and look at these examples, we should regard them. What are those things? That's what we want to look at under point number one, the practicing of righteousness. And when we look at them, there is a goal that he wants to um, to achieve by us enumerating them. And I'm not going to fully enumerate them, but enough to get us down to where I want us to contemplate his real exhortation. And that will be over in verse 15. Now, notice what he says in verse 15. I just want you to get it. I speak as to wise men judge what I say. Now, he's calling the Corinthians wise. He's saying, I think I'm speaking to people that are wise. Now, the Bible says the wise will hear and increase in learning. This is Proverbs chapter nine. So what he's giving them the benefit of the doubt is, is that the labor that he's about to put in, he's trusting that they will not neglect this exhortation. I'm speaking to you as wise men and women. And then he goes on to say, judge ye what I say. And then what he's going to do, which is beautiful, I want to talk about it on Friday, is he's going to give us another object lesson as to why we need to practice righteousness in this particular way. It's in verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And then he says in verse 16, part B, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the what? body of Christ. Now he's using what we call the Eucharisto or the Eucharist or what we call the Lord's table as again the central object of the grounds of our unity in God through Christ. He's taking the table and saying if you look at the table carefully what this represents is who you and I are in Christ. Can y'all see that? And then he sums it up over in verse 17 this way. This won't be developed except on Friday. For we, being many, are one bread. For we, being many, are one bread. You guys see that? He's making an assertion that we need to understand our unity in Christ. And he calls us one bread. One bread. This is the idea of us recognizing that what Christ is, we are in him. Okay? What Christ is... We are in him. And this is seen even more fully in the second uh, line. For we are all partakers of that what? One bread. Who is that one bread? All right. So this is profound in its implications. And I want to deal with that on Friday. This here is actually the indicative that drives the imperative. Then go back with me to verse uh, six. Because in verse 6, here's what he opens up saying, and we want to deal with that in our outline under point number one, the things to practically what? The things to practically what? Do you have your outline? Avoid. That's right. The things to practically avoid. I want you to get that word, because that's what he's going to be talking about doing. He's going to be talking about avoidance. Sometimes in life, there are things that you have to address, at other times, there are things that you and I must what? Avoid. Avoid. Um, circumvent. Make sure that we don't find ourselves engaging in. Avoidance is a, a passive energy 
to make sure that one does not get trapped within a kind of zone of contention, zone of conflict, zone of alluring, avoidance, avoidance. It is actually a mechanism for wise people. In the Hebrew, it's the word eshu. In the Old Testament, you will see this. Who is a wise man, but one who escheweth evil? What does that mean? Avoid it. Avoid evil. When you meet a person who avoids evil, they are operating out of two mechanisms. One, wisdom. The man or the woman that can avoid evil is a wise person. Not everybody can. Eve didn't. It came to her and she wasn't able to avoid it. For a wise person, wisdom is a mechanism by which to overcome a snare or a trap or a temptation that evil presents to you. And every one of us, if you've been living long enough, you actually admire people who know how to stay out of trouble. It's one thing to get out of trouble. That's, that's, a, that's a virtue. But it's another thing to stay out of trouble. This was the case with Job. Remember what God said when Satan came to tempt Job? Are you considering my servant Job? He's an upright man and mature in his generation. He's one that escheweth evil and does good. Now, what that looks like is an individual that has learned a value system of functioning and living in a way that they don't waste their time, neither do they find themselves struggling with things that don't matter in their life. It's important for you, for you and I to get that, that really this is what Paul is saying in our account. He's going to tell the church at Corinth that he wants them to practice avoiding four or five evils that you and I uh, want to look at now. Now, if you are going to be good at avoiding evil, it means you're going to have to learn what the principle of Psalm 1 verse 1 teaches us. We call this the no factor. You've heard me talk about it before. The no factor. Psalm 1 says what? Blessed is the man that does not. That's a no factor. That does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That's one set of avoidances. He avoids, she avoids bad counsel. Blessed is the man that avoids bad counsel. That means that you have to be thinking. That means you have to be reasoning through what you're hearing. That means you have to be discerning whether or not what you're hearing is something that you need to embrace or to reject. That's, a, that's an act of wisdom. Then he says, not only blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the un ungodly, but also does not stand or embrace the way of sinners. Here in this context is not only talking about counsel now, it's talking about the attitude and conduct of sinners. Blessed is the man that not only does not embrace the ideology or the doctrine of the ungodly, but blessed is the man or the woman that does not then put on as a garment the attitude and character and then begin to showcase what it means to be in the way of sinners. Does that make sense? All right, this is what we would call breaking the pattern of advancing from sin to sin to sin because sin is kind of an incremental, progressive type of thing. First, it's propositional. Then it's practical. Then it's consummate. 
Here in this verse, it speaks to the rhetoric of the words. That's what happened with Eve. She sat and listened to the words of the serpent. Then the next thing she did was practice what he had taught her by rebelling against God, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It became a way, a pattern. That's what the idea of a way is. A way means a pattern of life. And what, and what uh, the psalmist is saying is, blessed is the man or the woman, who not only does not embrace the doctrine, but does not practice the way of sinners. What that's going to look like on a practical level is that their lifestyle is going to be radically different than the broad road of men and women who are walking contrary to God's word. Does that make some sense? Right. When you watch someone who does not walk in lockstep, with the patterns of the common culture that are what we would call the majority, the broad row, it means not only do they have an understanding, but they have a quality of virtue intrinsic to their independence and their choice making that allows them to operate against the culture. When you are a man or a woman of principle and you understand what it means to avoid evil, you understand that you are going to practice something that actually goes against the grain. You are going to practice going in a pathway. You're going to have a kind of conduct that does not correspond to affirm and integrate with a large portion of the way of sinners. Does that make sense? And then finally, this is also like the third and, um, and, and final progression of what it means to be a sinner. A sinner thinks a certain way, a sinner acts a certain way, and then a, a sinner will walk in the authority of defying all that is good. So sitting in the seat of the scorner is what the Proverbs would call the unrighteous judge. Sitting in the seat is an authoritative framework. To sit in a seat is to sit in authority. When you sit in authority, then you are then you are functioning in a way now where you are telling people what you think about what is good and what is right. And the essence of your judgment is scornful. When you meet people who are scorners, not only are they not content with just living wickedly, they then are constantly fighting against what is right. They are seeking to tear down what is good. Did that make some sense? Right. To sit in the seat of the scorner is to sit in a position of ridiculing all righteousness. Right. That's where people go ultimately when they practice evil, because to practice evil means that you got to constantly reject what is good. And when you meet people that are doing that from a position of authority, then they are called the scorner, the scorner. What Paul is saying in, uh, in, in Corinthians is that you and I need to make sure that we practically avoid these things. Now, notice the way he puts it in verse 6 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to touch on each verse just a bit. Now, these things were examples to us to the intent with the purpose that we should not what? Lust. After evil things. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that Paul is actually telling us that we have to have control over our desires. We have to have control over our desires. Do you guys see that? Have control over our desires. I love what he's doing because he's taking us all the way back to the Genesis narrative. He's saying temptations, 
that lead us to bad behavior start with how we think. That's exactly what he's doing. Um, remember, Eve saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she saw that it was a tree to be desired. Now, here is where the challenge comes in for you and me in every area. Desire. What is desire? It's lust. It is a kind of lust. It is the deep inner, it's the deep inner interest that we have in something. Deep inner interest. Now, you've heard me use this word with this word before, epi. And then the next portion is the noun, epithumia. Epithumia. Epa means upon, and it's a preposition that is sort of a compounding preposition. I'm going to see if I can make this plain. Thumia is from where we get the term thermometer. Thermometer. Right. What Paul is saying is you must regulate your thermometer because your thermometer is your lust. And that thermometer will go up incrementally when you are fixated on something that you are craving. The words you want to put down is craving. To lust after our desire is to crave a thing. And what Paul said is, these things were written in order that you and I must not crave lust after, allow the emotional psychological fixation to be like a thermometer heating us up to the level of driving us to want that thing. Because that, again, that's what he did. Um, this is also what Aiken did. In the book of uh, Joshua, when they were going after the city Ai, and he saw a Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver, and the city was given to Corbin, that is, God wanted to judge it, and he went after the silver and after the Babylonian garment. And when Joshua finally caught him after a series of sort of a reduction of, of, uh, of, of investigation from one tribe to the next tribe, down to the tribe of Judah. When Achan came up, Joshua said to Achan, uh, tell us why you did what you did. And he says, I saw the Babylonian garment and the 200 uh, shekels of silver, and I coveted them. I lusted after them, so I took them and I hid them under my tent. Well, that's that whole process. You see it, you fixate on it, and then you pursue it. And I, I love what the Apostle Paul is doing here because the idea of uh, desiring something, that's not bad in of itself. That's why I said you got to regulate it. You got to regulate your passions. You got to regulate your fixation. You got to regulate your longings. You got to regulate your desires so that they are not given to things that are evil. Because that's what our text says. Look at it. Now, these things were written for our example to the intent that we should not lust after what? Evil things. Evil things. That's the, that's the point that the Apostle Paul wants to grasp. And, and again, we could go, uh, go at length with that. When he says evil things, that idea of evil things are the things that have moral corruption as their outcome. Moral corruption as their outcome. Evil things are the things that c corrupt us morally. It's the Greek term kakos, kakos, we can say it. Kakon in our context is in the accusative form. Do not lust after things that will cause a corruption of your morals and your ethics. 
obviously eating of the tree of the knowledge of evil did exactly that. And that was because God had said it was wrong to do. So the idea of good and evil is the fundamental binary of choice for all of us. It is definitely not wrong to covet or lust or desire good things. Good things, however, that actually correspond with God's will, right? Every good and perfect gift the Lord gives to us. So it's never wrong to covet good things. And, and you and I, if we wanted to spend time, not today, but on Friday, we could talk about what are some of those good things. We could enumerate them. We could also enumerate evil things. I'm simply giving you a definition. I'll give you a few verses here in a moment. What does he mean by do not covet, do not uh, inordinately desire evil things? That means the child of God has to now find out what that means categorically. The child of God has to do the theological work, the biblical work of finding out what constitutes evil to God. Would you agree with that? All right. So I'm going to give you some verses so we can work through uh, what I call the rotten, useless, moral corruption when we embrace something that doesn't correspond with God's good. The first verse is Romans 130. Romans 130 uses this term uh, caucus. And uh, here is what it says. I, I like the way Paul puts this. It's still in a very generic way, but you'll get the context. Uh, start back at verse 29. Here's what he says in Romans 1:29, with regards to, um, to to people that that do evil. Um, let me see if I can find it also, because are, are we stuck? All right. Now, Paul is talking about the very people of whom he has warned because they have rejected the knowledge of God, God gave them up to a base mind, a reprobate mind. They lost the capacity for discerning what good and evil is, and they are given over to their lust, being filled with all what? Unrighteousness. Now, that is a fundamental disposition. That means they're disconnected from God's righteousness, and they are also practicing unrighteousness. Now, righteousness is full conformity and obedience to God's law. Therefore, violating God's righteousness makes you a transgressor, right? So transgressors are men and women who behave unrighteously. All sin is unrighteousness. So sinners are unrighteous by nature. They're unrighteous by conduct. He says being filled with unrighteousness. And notice immediately he says they're engaging in what? Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, verse 30, what a list, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and disobedient, don't rush, don't rush, you need to study those, don't laugh either. We're tagged by this, every one of us. Don't rush. We're tagged by this. You're tagged. I guarantee you there are times when you're body. You're despiteful, proud, bolsters. Go back, go back up to verse 29 again. I'm going to just walk through this briefly. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever, between the, the mature in Christ and people who don't operate under the control and guidance of the Spirit of God is they're filled with this unrighteousness. So when you live and function and engage people who are absent of the Spirit of God, 
Nothing of their conduct and attitude shows that they are committed to moral rectitude, to, to ethically good behavior, to good things. They are so prone to evil, so prone to these, these characteristics that will constitute behavior, unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. That's a, that's an un, that's a destabilizing list, is it not? You meet people that are fundamentally given over to covetousness, you can tell they're greedy people. When you meet people that are malicious, you are meeting people whose hearts are filled with malice. You can tell that they're offended and that they are operating out of a kind of narrow framework of both guilt and anger. Malicious people, guilt and anger drives the way they talk, the way they frame things, the way they they constantly argue, the way they constantly accuse people. Did that come home? Right. And you can pick up on that when you let them talk at length. They are angry. They are disgruntled. They want to be in control. They can't be in control. Everybody's bad or a lot of people are bad or that camp over there is absolutely right. This is also the party spirit. And, and what's underneath this kind of attitude is a lack of affirmation that they're right with God. It's a major vacuum in their um, in their insecurity. Does that make some sense? A major vacuum in their sense of insecurity, full of envy. You, you guys know what envy is. We talked about that, right? Envy is that idea of craving even to the point of wanting to hurt someone to have what they have. Full of envy and murder and debate. There you go. Debate. You meet somebody that's always contentious, always ready to argue, all ready to hold an oppositional view. But, 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 see what I'm getting at? Right, it's very important for us to mark these. Deceit, what is, what is the deceit? It's the idea of not being able to be honest and simple and straightforward. A deceitful person is a complex person. They're much more uh, difficult than they should be. See, when you're walking in levels of honesty, you're simple. When you're deceitful, you're very complex and you are problematic. Does that make some sense? That's a deceitful person. Uh, and again, malignant means meaning really harmful. And then whispers. What a what a tragic thing. This one here bothers me to no end. I'm going to leave it alone. I need to leave it alone. I do not like people whispering around me. Why are you whispering? Why are you whispering? What, what, what's the point of whispering? Are you saying something that you don't want me to hear? See what I'm getting at? And there are people that do that. All. Don't, don't get me wrong. I know you're whispering to your partners here, Grace. I don't mind. I'm just saying in general, when you're in a, a community of people and someone's whispering over to the other person, that is so unkind. That is so disrespectful. Okay, we could go so deep into that. And what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is those qualities are not good. And if we were to deal with the antithesis of that, it would simply be that a man or a woman knows how to have a yay that's yay and a nay that's nay. And it's framed in a way not to call attention to themselves, but it indicates that they're fairly confident that they're being sincere and being honest in how they engage on a, on a, on a uh, relational level. Does that make sense? Right. That kind of person is going to be much more comfortable to be around. 
then the complex person, then the complicated person, then the person that is that is operating with these these maladies. Again, verse 30. Again, verse 30. Um, it will once again kind of tie the knot. Um, I guess our computer is slowing down. Yeah. Backbiters. Right. Right. A backbiter is a coward. And that's rooted in insecurity, too. It's rooted in insecurity. When people are backbiters, they are actually training other people to be cowards. They're talking about somebody behind their back. I got that. They're training other people to be cowards, too. Haters of God. You might as well be a backbiter when you're a hater of God. Right. That's what I meant by a vacuum in their sense of security, because when you're a hater of God, you don't have truth on your side and you don't have God as your defense. Despiteful, proud, bolsters. And notice how he closes out the list. Inventors of what? Evil things. Now, take that up in your own time. And what that looks like is the way our culture functions today at all of its mechanistic levels. Entertainment in its policies, in its practices, in its engagements. Inventors of evil things uh, really covers the gamut of all of the phenotypical expression of human behavior that is moral and immoral and unethical in its expression. Does that make some sense? Inventors of evil things. I like the way Paul puts that. Inventors of evil things in contradistinction to inventors of what? Good things. And then notice at the bottom the disobedience to what? Right. I see what Paul is getting at. This is where we are in our culture today because of a breakdown of the hierarchy of authority. When when a person is not walking in the kind of sense of accountability to God, accountability to parents, accountability to a spouse, accountability to upline siblings, etc., accountability to seniors, accountability. When that accountability structure is gone in their mind, then they're going to be uh, they're going to be in a destructive mode on a relational level. You see that. And uh, so it's very important to understand what Paul said when it, we were dealing with verse six. Now, these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust. Let our focused attention, passions and lust drive us to engage in evil things as also they lusted. Let's go on. Neither be ye idolaters. Do you see it? Neither be ye idolaters. And all Paul is doing when he says this now is stacking all of these, these maladies, all of these characteristics up under the rubric of covetousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 9 is what we're going to look at now. Colossians 3, 5 through 9. I want you to hear this. He says, now mortify your members which are upon the earth. Mortify is the word that means to put to death. And he's speaking metaphorically. What he's saying is control the activity of your body and your mind when it yields itself to unrighteousness. Because it's your mind and your body that collaborate to do something stupid. It's your mind telling your body, which is a uh, which is a slave to your passions. That's Romans seven and Romans six. When he says uh, he says in Romans chapter six, yield yourselves unto God and no longer unto sin because you're no longer under law, but under grace. And so yielding your body means that you only make your body available to 
uh, be an instrument of righteousness and not an instrument of evil. That, that requires Psalm 1 verse 1 again, thinking right, controlling your passions, and then executing choice making in a way where the outcome is, is good and God glorified morally and ethically um, uh, blameless. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. We could easily spend much time on that. What does that look like? But here is what he says, mortify your members upon the earth that engage in. This is an elliptical term again, because notice what he says, mortify your members. What members? The totality of your body, your eyes, your mind, your heart, your hands. Because the first thing he says is fornication. Now, fornication for you and I is a misuse of the body engaging in lustful passion for sexual gratification, right? But, but it had to start with the way we're thinking. Then it had to move from thinking, if they weren't simultaneous, to seeing and observing things the wrong way and coveting something that you shouldn't have by way of wanting physical contact with somebody. Did that make some sense? So you mortify your members in that regard, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness. Uncleanness is a generic term Paul uses all the time, taking it back from the Old Testament realm of uncleanness. Anything that is viewed by God as defiling, as corrupting, as immoral, as unethical, that takes you out of the sphere of being viewed as clean. Remember, believers have been cleansed and washed by the blood of the lamb and they have been washed by the Holy Ghost in their heart and their mind. They've been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ and were considered clean. That's Titus 3, 5 through 7 as well, right? Washed by the washing of the word, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of our hearts and minds by the Holy Ghost. So a clean mind is going to think right and a clean mind is going to be engaged with a heart that desires right things and the outcome will be a kind of right conduct. That makes sense, right? We're not going to be like the sow returning again to the, 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 the pit, to that, that, that mire, to that pig pen filled with all of those corrupt and vile things. And this is what Paul meant. Inordinate what? affection. Same thing there, inordinate affection. Evil thinking, concupiscence is evil thinking. And he says here, covetousness, which is what? So New Testament idolatry is merely covetousness. It's the uncontrolled epithumia, the temperature rising up in a focused trap upon something so feverishly that you go after it to have it as if it's your God. That makes sense. Right. It's called idolatry. And that's why Paul says here, neither be ye idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to what? We've been through that, haven't we? Numbers 33, right? We saw what Israel did and what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is don't be idolaters in that sense, coveting evil Things. Don't engage in the rotten, useless, morally corrupt practices that constitutes the practice of idolaters. I love this. This is James chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to read a few verses because they actually overlap. James 1, 13 speaks to this as well. James is warning about the same things. James the pious in James chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about every man is drawn away. There it is. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Verse 14, 
Look at verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is what? Drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now that's what Paul is saying. Avoid that kind of drawing implication that leads you down a path by which you engage in evil things. There it is. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his lust. In this context, tempted is not tried. When he is drawn away of his own lust, he's gone from trial to temptation. I'm going to be talking about that on Sunday. This is very clear here. That's our same idea of uh, evil things. Um, so many more. Uh, sub point C in your outline, the acts of fornication, because Paul now brings this up in verse eight. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day. Twenty three thousand. See it. Now, again, this is a journey through the wilderness, isn't it? We're not quite there in this particular account, but we will be. We're in numbers now, so we're headed there. We've got about seven more uh, stops to do in the book of, uh, of the Old Testament in this uh, arise, go, arise, move, and go sojourn, and we're almost there. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day 23,000. That means God brought a judgment, a plague that destroyed them, because they gave themselves to epithemia. This is absolutely phenomenal that this would have been the case, but it was. Here's the next one that he says that we need to be avoiding. Neither let us do what? Tempt Christ. Now, I love this because Paul is giving a New Testament expression for an Old Testament event of which I've told you Jesus is really the Yahweh present and visible with Moses throughout this whole journey. Haven't I told you that? The father's on his throne, but the one coming down is Jesus. The one looking through the clouds is Jesus. The one that says, come here, Moses. Come here, Aaron. Come here, Miriam. That's Jesus. He came down and said, come here. That's Jesus. Moses knew Jesus. Neither let us do what? Tempt Christ. Look at it. Tempt Christ. Neither let us tempt Christ as some did also and were destroyed of the serpent. Look here again at Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25 addresses that and briefly I shouldn't shouldn't spend much time there, but I just want us to to mark it. The this is the account when once again they are they are asking, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can God get us to where we need to be? And, and really, they're not even even asking that. They're like just committed to this level of complaining that is so irrational that finally it brings to judgment. Here it is. Uh, verse 20, uh, verse one of chapter 25. And Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of the Moabites. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of the gods and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. You guys see that? And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. Is God upset or what? This is what I'm trying to tell you. Forget the notion of unconditional love. Your Bible is completely against such notion. This is a fierce judgment against the rulers of the people who practice this kind of open rebellion, not only engaging in fornication, but doing it in the name of a false God. It's called Baal Peor. OK, doing it in the name of a false God. This is what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. Don't engage in this. And I'll talk about it more fully on Friday because 
and look over at verse 9. And those that died in the plague were how many? 20 and 4,000. 23 one day, 1,000 the other day. So that's the total number. Go back to our text. Uh, I'll talk about it more, more fully on Friday to, to develop this a bit more. Because in our context, where you know it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is actually addressing the issue of how the church is to engage in the public around eating and drinking, whether we should eat and drink at the idol, at the table of idols with all the other Gentile pagans or not, when and when not to engage in the marketplace when the marketplace is overtly and intentionally engaging in idolatry and when it's okay. That's really what he's working around. What he's warning the church at, um, at Corinth not to think is that you can eat at the table of Christ and then eat at the table of devils too. Now that, that becomes an interesting way of thinking, wouldn't you agree? Whatever, whatever that would mean, what, whatever that would mean, what they, are, what they are tempted to do is to destroy a distinction between the holy table of the Lord and the table of devils. Fellowshipping with Christ and then fellowshipping with Baal. Fellowshipping in the community of those that are set apart and those that are walking in the, the, the cleansing efficacy of God's grace versus fellowshipping with the wicked and engaging in the idolatries and perversions of the world. Did that make some sense? So I'm just giving you that category. We'll look at it because what the Corinthians did is what our churches are frequently doing today, losing a distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness. Losing the clarity between that which is redemptive in nature and therefore sanctified and set apart versus that which is not redeemed, that's not claimed by Christ and doesn't have the spirit of God in it is extremely important. Again, uh, for the Corinthians, they had lost the no factor. They had opened the door for all kinds of bad behavior. And there are Christians you will meet that will do the same. Now, there's a note I want you to grasp. Go back to verse seven. Then look at verse 8, and then look at verse 9. There's a statement I want you to capture. Neither be ye idolaters as some of them. That's what I want you to capture. Look at verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them. That's what I want you to catch. Then the same thing uh, in verse 8, uh, verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted Christ and were destroyed by the, the serpent. Verse 10, neither murmur ye as some of them. Do you see that again? Also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. I wanted you to capture that. Over in that, that second one, the, uh, verse 10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured under our subpoint D point. This is called the disgracing of God's what? Provisions. They were murmuring, Numbers chapter 11, verse 6, against the manna. That's what I want you to capture. They were murmuring against the manna. Manna, this is where we were recently. Listen to what it says. But now our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. The despising, the despising of God's grace. You see it? So think about what happened on a psychological and a spiritual devolutionary process. They were brought out of Egypt, day one, week one, 
in the wilderness in less than a month, they're hungering for food. And God gives them manna. That's Numbers chapter 16. They called it manna because they didn't know what to call it. And I shared this with you. It was food for their strength. It was not food for their lust. The food that God had given them in the manna was designed to be in contradistinction to the pleasurable foods of Egypt. God had given them bread for their journey, not for their lust. And the way they described it in, in Numbers was that it was like coriander seeds. You can actually go into Hebrew culture and find out it. It was a wafer and it was very light and it had some flavor to it, but largely it was designed to be nutritional and strengthening of their body as they make their journey through the wilderness. Did that, did that come on? Stay with me. So God was changing their diet. He was strengthening their health. And he was preparing them for a journey that really only was supposed to last three months. Because I told you we made it down to the uh, Sinai Peninsula in, in 90 days. They got the Torah. And after Torah, they were supposed to head on into the promised land. They were not supposed to be eating manna for 40 years. Are you hearing me? In other words, God was saying, I'm, I'm, it's not going to be long between Egypt and home, but it's going to be long enough for me to transform your bodies and change your palate. Because I want you to move away from thinking like Egyptians. Because that Egyptian food will actually have intrinsic memory mechanisms that will cause you to want to crave going back. Did that make some sense? Right, right, of course. And this is really about the difference between old and new in our walk, right? If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's what? Right, and old things are passing away. So when you are a believer on your journey to glory, you and I must know that things have to drop off. Patterns have to change. Cravings have to change. Value systems have to change. If you're going to make progress in your walk, if you're going to grow, if you're going to become strong in the Lord, if you're going to become renewed in your mind, if you're going to think God's thoughts after him, you and I have to go through a discipline of transformation from the inside out. And as much as eating food is a constant frequency, is a constant frequency, so taking on new modalities of functioning with God is a constant thing. Does that make some sense? Right. This is where people need to be really serious about how they engage God's word, because if you don't engage God's word as you ought to, you won't see that level of transformation. Right. So just think about it like this. And everybody has 24. We all have the same amount of time. We all have the same amount of time. We really do. I only, your pastor only has 24 hours in a day. That's all I, I don't, I don't get one second more than you do. I have to make choices within that 24 hour period to do a thousand things. What I don't get to do is neglect God as the foundation, as the framing, as the strength, as the source and object of my health and strength and ability to do what I need to do in my right choice making so that particularly when it's time for me to execute my calling, I'm competent and I'm capable. 
That means I have to manage my time well, but managing my time is also calling me to a set of hierarchical principles. That means when my time is managed well, I'm ready to do what I need to do at the right time that I need to do it for God to be glorified in my life. Does that make some sense? Right. And that is what children of God are called to. That's why God doesn't give you 72 hours in a day. Do you know how much clowning we would be doing if we had 72 hours in a day? All right, so every day we get to wake up and go, okay, stupid. Okay, stupid, let's stop. Okay, stupid. Let's stop it, stupid. Right? Because there are things we're doing that are stupid. And it's 24 hours and we're back at it again. Here's another stupid thing. Okay, stupid. Now you, you don't, you already know whatsoever man sows, that shall he also keep doing that stupid and you're going to reap. Am I telling the truth? I am bona fide telling the truth. It's God's mercy that we only have 24 hours in a day. Because every day we get to wake up to the reality of the things we failed to do right yesterday. And it doesn't take a week. It's the next day. If we are serious about right choice making, Thank you, Lord, that I'm still here having to deal with what I dealt with yesterday, meaning that God hasn't taken it off the table. He wants you to work on that. See, I could go into application mode and you know how that goes, right? Because there are things that are just still there and they should be gone. Stop, Jesse. Change it. You can be better. You can be wiser. You can do better. See what I'm getting at? All right, one more. And this is really interesting because despising God's provision is clearly seen in Hebrews 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. Let me quickly embrace that. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Most people don't understand that text. That's not just talk about, that's not speaking to mere arbitrary sinning. Everybody is sinning all the time, and most of it is willful, okay? Actually, I'm going to be talking about that on Sunday. There's almost no sin that you commit unwillfully. If I start now into logic and philosophy, it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. At the bottom level, you did. You knew intuitively. You knew at the motive level. You may not have known cognitively, but at the motive level, you knew the Holy Ghost let you know. Your conscience let you know. Your lust let you know. See, when you're engaging in that deep, secret, inner sanctuary temptation, it was already letting you know. You Now you know you slid into trouble, right? Verse 27. This here is talking about abandoning the gospel for other systems of righteousness. He says, if after we have received the knowledge of the truth, you see that phrase, the knowledge of the truth, that's equivalent to the gospel. If after we have heard the gospel, please understand there is no other sacrifice for sin, but what the gospel brought. Did I come home? I need to help some of you. This is not about general moral disobedience. This is about hearing the gospel that is exclusive in its proposition that tells you and me Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that Christ died for our sins, and that he rose again from the dead to justify us, and that his ascension into heaven merits the grounds upon which sinners can be saved through the merits of Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. Does that make sense? You reject that, then God's not going to give you any other method to deal with your sin. 
Verse 27, can we, can we try to squeeze that verse in? But a certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the what? So now notice what is going on here. What, 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 the, what the Hebrew writer says is, if you reject the gospel, you're not neutral. You're an adversary. Did you see that? He's saying, and, and you have every reason to be afraid. Because here is the God who is your judge and he's bringing to you the one sacrifice for sin in the person of his son. And you're rejecting that sacrifice for other things. You have every right to be afraid that God's going to open the ground and swallow you up as we're going to learn in number 16 in a week or two. Every reason for you to believe that God's going to swallow you up because not only are you rejecting God's uh, offer, you're rejecting his son. All right. That's equivalent to what Israel was doing when they said the only thing we have in front of us is this manna. This detestable manna. Same thing. Do y'all get what I just stated? Right. Verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. We figured that out. We've been watching that quite a bit, haven't we? Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God? You've taken the Son of God and trod him underfoot. Now, this here is illustrative language, but it's the same as despising the manna and stepping on the manna, saying, I don't want this. I want flesh. I want quail. I want leeks. I want onions. Did that make some sense? Right. That's what they were doing in Numbers 11. That's what they were saying. We don't want this. That's the same chapter where God says, I'm going to give it to you. And it's not going to be one day. It's not going to be one week. It's not going to be three weeks. It's going to be a whole month until it's running out of your nostrils. That's wild, isn't it? That's wild. I'm going to close here and then we'll pick it up on Friday. For that prophecy to be fulfilled in Numbers 11, when God says, I'm going to give you quail and you're not going to eat one day. You're not going to eat five days. You're not going to eat one week. You're not going to eat two. You're going to eat this thing for a whole month and you're going to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until it's running out of your nostrils. For that to happen means the people will have been given over to unbridled epithumia. You got me? The 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 thermometer will go off the chart and they will choke on their lust. No regulation. And, and that's what we saw happen, right? That's exactly what we saw. They ate until they were stuffed and many of them died. That means God didn't let them regulate because God regulates your body. Like when you when you're full, you're supposed to. You can't when God lets his hand off of you. And it's a picture of giving people over to their lust. That's what's going on in our society. And this is why, I t we should, all right, we're going to stop here. This is why I say, do not tell me you have free will because you don't. Can I help you? Now, see, many have been taught by me well over the years. If you have free will, you could always, anytime you want to, just say no to anything. Did you hear what I just stated? I have free will of my own will. I can just stop. Yeah, right. Am I making sense? Right. There's virtually nothing you can just stop. 
There's virtually nothing you can just stay with me, child of God. Don't be mad at me. This is your Bible. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Your heart loves lying to you. I can stop. Just 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 one more cookie. Right. Are y'all keeping up with me? Right. No, you can't. You need grace. <laughs> well, I can stop sinning whenever I want to. Boy, you are absolutely insane. Who are you thinking you can stop sinning when you want to? You haven't yet. I'm going to stop. I'm pastor. I promise you I'm going to stop. Don't promise me because you're lying to me. You need grace to stop. 